Hello, Pursuit of Purpose listeners. Here's a little clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Somebody made a machine that can like look at where the asparagus is and kind of like go down and pull out and harvest the asparagus with a robot instead of, you know, something that otherwise would have to be dug up by hand or by a human. Um, and also basic cases like use computer vision to spot where the weeds are in the field and then it would only apply the pesticide of the spray exactly where the weeds are versus carpet bombing an entire field like those are the kind of things that are that are possible now you're listening to the pursuit of purpose podcast wisdom stories and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people Thank you all for tuning in on another episode of the Pursuit of Purpose. For those of you that know anything about me, you know that I love technology, uh, automation, drones, robots, etc. Pretty much anything uh, in that space, such as the you know Amazon drone delivery, self-driving cars. I just uh, love geeking out about that. So this episode was just a really fun one for me. Um, David and I uh, do kind of dive into that, and he actually his company ARG does a lot um, in that space actually. So this was a really, really fun episode for me to be a part of. And if you're not a tech person, you might want to skip this episode because that's pretty much all that we talk about. However, if you are also someone uh, that's maybe a little bit of a nerd like myself, hopefully you uh, get a lot out of this episode. Now for some shout outs. Uh, There have been several people that have been uh, commenting, engaging with the episode now that I've been a little more active with it on social media and in particular on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but thank you to Marcy Wymore from Boise for your nice note, uh, letting me know that you're tuning in from Idaho. And I also wanted to acknowledge several people that have contributed to some upcoming episodes. And in particular, uh, there's an episode with Mr. Phil McQueen, a history teacher, a very, very good history teacher. Um, and I had some listeners contribute some questions for that episode. So Ed Zubek from Ohio, Jenna Schultz from Texas, Anthony Johnson from Rome, Italy, Teresa Stoklowski from Oregon, and Katie Vincent from Oregon as well. Thank you guys very much for your um, comments and uh, questions for Mr. McQueen. And just as a reminder, all of you can uh, stay um, up to date and kind of follow along and contribute to upcoming episodes by following me on Instagram. That's Chris Kiefer underscore net. Uh, you can also uh, st- see all these episodes on the website, chriskiefer.net. And then my email as well is chris at chriskiefer.net. So um, feel free to reach out. Love getting um, little comments or suggestions. If you have ideas of future guests that you'd like to see on the show, um, always really appreciate hearing those. Now let's get into today's episode with David Nichols. David, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Why don't you just give us a background on who you are and what um, ARG, you do go by that, correct? Yes, because Automation Resources Group is way too many syllables. I don't know what we were thinking. I started the company back in 2007, and uh, by training, I'm an engineer. And so the company is very much about engineering. And we work with equipment builders uh, in the industrial automation world. Um, So that means things that are in factories. Um, The way that we talk about it is we say that we want to inspire and enable innovators to create revolutionary machines. So 
what that looks like is uh, maybe a machine that is cutting metal or it's putting things into cardboard boxes or making kitchen cabinets or computer chips or whatever you can imagine. Um, depending on who I'm talking to, I sometimes start by saying, did you know that everything in the world comes from factories? Uh, <laughs> and factories are full of machines. Uh, so that's that's our world and that's, that's what we do. That's awesome. So when I first uh, met you, there were two things. First of all, I absolutely love automation. I've mm -hmm. actually told my wife a number of times that if when I went to college, I was um, if there was a degree that was um, some some sort of like efficiency degree or mm -hmm. like an optimization thing, and I took a couple mm -hmm. optimization classes, that is probably what I would go back to, and there probably is at this point. I just have never really looked into it. But what I absolutely hate is doing the same thing multiple times. So mm -hmm. I will pretty much learn how to do anything once. Mm -hmm. And then, and that's like anything, like changing the oil in the car. I did it, and I never want to do it again. You know, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Low, like whatever the, it could be super absurd, making chicken parmesan, and I'm like, wow, that was cool. But I think I'd rather pay someone else to do that. But mm -hmm. um, the automation piece of what you do is fascinating to me. And then also being an engineer, um, I I like to geek out about technology and robots and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. what is, how did you find yourself in the place you said you were, you got an engineering degree. Um, mm -hmm. How did you end up getting to this place where you started this company that now deals with automation? Yeah. So I was lucky, I guess, because, well, I was lucky in many ways, but I, I was lucky when I, w I went to University of Illinois and University of Illinois has a department called at the time it was called general engineering. Now it's called industrial and systems engineering. Uh, and what that ended up being was kind of a mishmash of many engineering disciplines. Um, in the modern world, there's so much depth in a lot of topics, whether it's electrical or mechanical or civil engineering. Um, it's very common for engineers to be really highly specialized in what they know about or what they're taught about. So general engineering was kind of the opposite of that. I, and the way that I talked about it was we took the weed out classes from every department um, and somehow we're supposed to survive that. So I got a really broad engineering education and that also happened to be where a lot of the control systems and automation, you know, the things that are at the root of a lot of automation, those kind of professors and, and researchers were in that department because automation involves the combination of mechanical, electrical, and software engineering these days. So, um, you know, you don't necessarily get that from the computer science department or even the mechanical engineering department. Those departments are all almost too specialized um, for the automation world, which is kind of the combination. So I kind of stumbled into that department and, and, re and I liked it for that reason. Um, I had had a, some software experience, you know, luckily from when I was very young, you know, playing Doom when I was 12, um, got obsessed with computers, but then, and, and programming. Um, but when I learned that you could write programs that would ha actually make something happen in the physical world, that was really what hooked me where it's like, when I hit enter, something's going to move around and something's going to happen instead of maybe a bunch of database rows changing, which, you know, is cool too, but it's, mm. uh, for me, when I, when I, I could make something move and with software that, that was something that I kind of stumbled into in college and 
and I was pretty much hooked from there and, and managed to find a job that was related to that, you know, basically sold a lot of components and parts that go into machines. Uh, I was like an application specialist, so I would help you figure out, you know, why your motion controller wasn't working, that type of thing. And then um, after a couple of years of that, that company got acquired by a bigger company and some of the relationships that I had developed just in those two years um, with both sort of the product line and some of the customers um, were how we kind of started very early um, kind of in my in my professional life. So do you remember the, I think it's, it's always interesting to me, like the first client, sort of like for a restaurant, the first dollar that they frame, yeah. what was kind of the first, um, or maybe there was like a several of like projects that kind of made it real for you in the, when breaking off on your own, do you remember mm -hmm. who that was or was there anything significant about that? Yeah, I do. I, as I mentioned, some of the relationships and, and the products that we were working with were I had some sort of continuity from my previous job, my previous uh, job working for another company. Um, so when we started this, you know, some of that was kind of carryover. You know, I, I didn't feel like it was really mine, but uh, I, and I don't know how long it took for this, but I, I really distinctly remember there was a, a company in Sonora that makes semiconductor furnaces. So with that information, you could probably figure out who they are, but I won't say their name. Um, but we went in and kind of pitched them on, you know, here's how we can make your, your, your new furnace, you know, have these amazing capabilities and, and awesome software. And it's going to be, you know, we looked through all the designs and here's this amazing solution to this problem for you. And, and kind of myself, I was probably 25 or 26 and my business partner and co-founder was maybe 28. And so here's these two, 20 somethings in suits and in, in front of like a boardroom of people. And I don't know what they must've been thinking, but they, they, uh, they selected us and, you know, we ended up winning that project and that was like a huge win for us because, you know, that was like 2008, 2009 and that helping them with that R and D project and building that machine got us through, you know, what to everyone else was apocalyptic. I mean, we had no revenue to lose. So we just, we just were able to kind of get the company off the ground with that, with that, with that big win. That's awesome. Do mm -hmm. you, one thing in my own, um, uh, ventures as a business owner, I feel like there's a necessary balance of, you can't do projects that you know you can do because, especially when you're a startup, because you probably mm -hmm. haven't done them or the projects mm -hmm. that you already know you can do aren't mm -hmm. worth anything to anybody. So you have yeah. to balance kind of the, you know, living on the edge of pushing yourself to, I feel pretty certain we could do that, but I'm also a little bit scared that we could actually mm -hmm. pull it off without any major issues or worse, you know, just failing. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that? Or I guess I should say, is that uh, accurate in your world? And then if so, how do you balance that? Yeah, uh, the way that we say that is, is sort of a rhetorical question of, well, where would we be if we only did what we were qualified to do, uh, te technically speaking, right? So you got to do those things you're unqualified for uh, in order to, to grow kind of by definition. Um, and so, you know, there, but there are lessons, you know, and, and I think there, and there are patterns. So even if we know, like, even if we don't know specifically how we're going to do this machine design or, no one knows, you know, if this is even going to work at all. Um, 
you know, the kind of what you learn along the way is like, well, we know these things happen. We know it's going to be a complete mess when we first put it together and, you know, the sky is going to be falling and a million things are going to be wrong in, in these ways. But, you know, from our experience, there's patterns. And so nowadays when that happens, it's just normal. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's objectively chaos or, you know, again, it's a very create, it's a very creative process. Right. And that doesn't happen on a necessarily on a clock or on a schedule. It happens under intense pressure and kind of, you don't always know, you know, how long it's going to take to figure out some bug that's holding up the potato chip factory, um, Mm. which is not a good place to be, but we, we figured out bugs like that before. So, you know, let's, let's jump in and, and kind of do what we know how to do. So I, I don't know if that's, a specific technique, but I mean, it's a complicated topic because the other thing that I've learned from having that inclination is I, there's certain things that I really shouldn't do, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so that's the counterpoint to, you know, you're not qualified to do it, do it anyway. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't just, that's another kind of instinct or, or kind of knowledge about yourself. Right. Uh, that that you maybe gain from from the things that worked out well or didn't work out so well. Right, right. Jumping into the topic of robots and automation, mm-hmm. in your opinion, are robots actually going to take over the world at some point? Uh, so uh, this is a nitpick on the question, but at some point that could happen. Uh, I don't think that's happening in our lifetimes because getting robots to do the most basic things is still a big, big challenge every single day in, in the real world. So, you know, I, I think having tried to get robots to do things like simple things, uh, <laughs> and, and reliably, um, the idea that they would, you know, break out of their cage and, and kind of become our masters is kind of a, more amusing to me than, than anything else, because, uh, you know, robots aren't that hard to break these days. Um, you know, even when they're operating kind of very limited areas, um, the idea that they could enslave humanity is, is more of like a fun idea, but I, I kind of come down in between the utopian and dystopian futures that are envisioned. You know, I, I I guess it's, I I don't think we're all going to be sipping mojitos on the beach, you know, for our entire lives, nor do I think that, you know, robots are going to enslave us and it's going to be Blade Runner or something. Um, but if we do get enslaved by robots, it's going to be something like, I can't stop scrolling through my Instagram feed because it's so compelling, right? Like, it'll be something mm. like that. It's not going to be like, uh, you know, some some uh, stormtrooper shows up at your front door or something. <laughs> get in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. No, I think that's actually a good, uh, that's a, I think that's a very interesting, uh, perspective that it's not going to be like forceful. It's almost going to be our weakness as our discipline will be our downfall. Tell me like, what are some interesting things that you guys have automated before that was maybe, you know, just for the, the average person or the listener, um, Mm -hmm. would be surprised that, um, there's a robot that can do such a thing. Um, you know, the this most surprising thing really is is more the scale and and how much how much you don't see or or you're not really aware of because that's why I say did you know things come from factories because you don't it doesn't really occur to you necessarily when you're walking through the grocery store the kind of scale that's behind that and and you know the example that I use a lot of times is 
is just if you crack open a bottle of beer, uh, there was a machine that not only a whole factory that brewed that beer that was probably 10 machines. There's a machine that put that made the bottle, put the beer in the bottle, uh, put the cap on the bottle, put the bottle in a case, put the case on a conveyor, stacked up the cases onto a pallet, wrapped them in plastic, shipped them to the, you know, there's so many things behind what we just totally take for granted that I think that's what people would be really surprised by. So it's kind of mundane, right? Like one of our biggest clients are making pizza boxes. <laughs> it just, that's cr- yeah, that's oh yeah. Every about. time I had a pizza, it had a giant cardboard thing wrapped around it. And right. there's a 20 machines that made that cardboard box. In your opinion, how much innovation is happening in the automation world? Is mm-hmm. it really, because on one hand, yes, you like everything is automated, but then factories have been doing this type of stuff for years and years. Yeah. So my point of view on that is they're not doing nearly enough uh, in terms of in terms of innovation. And I think earlier, you know, ten years ago, I was much more kind of angry about that because I would go into a place and kind of wave my hands around. Don't you see what's possible? And you know, I wasn't really, I didn't really have an appreciation for all of the constraints that go into manufacturing or, you know, yeah, it's a really cool idea that you would do that fancy new thing. But if that machine breaks down for two hours, I'm going to get fired and then I'm not going to have a job. And then I'm gonna, what am I going to do to feed my family? <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh yeah, that is actually like, sounds like a pretty high pressure situation. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe let's be really conservative, you know? And so like, I, there is that, you know, I, I kind of understand and respect that, um, to a certain degree, but I think that there's so much more that's possible. Um, and you know, if you, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, um, the industrial revolution is, you know, kind of full speed ahead for the last 200 years. Um, and there, there have been some companies, you know, can get really well established and, you know, they, they kind of just do what they do for the last 60 years and they're not, maybe they don't need to do something new. They're do pretty well successful without doing something new. Thank you very much. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, obviously our, our values and, and kind of what is exciting to us kind of leads us to work with people that are really trying to push the envelope. We want to help them do that. That's just in our nature to do that. And, and when we do get together with, you know, or we, we end up in situations where we're working with, yeah, more conservative, companies or more conservative situations, it's just frustrating for both sides because we want to go do crazy stuff and and make it, you know, amazing and fantastic and new and futuristic. And and they're like, we actually just need to make sure that, you know, the beer gets into the can and that's all (laughs) we care about, you know, and it's like, okay. Um, So it's, it's, it's a bit of a balance. And and I say sometimes, especially with new technologies, like a lot of the companies are really well established and, and maybe they were founded by some mechanical genius, literally in their garage. 60 or 80 years ago and you know they had that spark they had that drive to you know what it it is possible to do this thing i bet i could figure that out and they go and do it you know they they weren't writing software but they were doing it with you know chains and sprockets and you know you know a certain point you know electronics and and switches and motors and stuff like you know that's that's the history of people making machines to do things um i think 
we want to be on the cutting edge of that and kind of bring in software and the newest the newest things that that honestly in the technology world are kind of taken for granted in the manufacturing world i think there's still you know 10 10 20 years behind some of the state of the art in in the world of software for example so as far as humans being concerned of losing their jobs do you think that I don't even know. I guess just as like a topic, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's, well, obviously I'm super biased towards automation being kind of a good thing, right? I mean, you can look and watch, you know, Charlie Chaplin being, you know, a factory worker, you know, destroyed by the gears of technology. You know, this is, it's like the oldest meme possible is that, (laughs) you know, machines are going to, you know, obviate the need for humans and, you know, what's the point? You know, they're going to technological unemployment is going to destroy the world. Um, But it hasn't happened in 200 years. So what do we why do we think it's going to happen now? Um, You know, I I don't think the dynamics are so different Hmm. over that period of time that that that's something we've always found new new ways and new things to do. And and Mark Andreessen has a lot to say about this as well. It's like it's easy to imagine the jobs like, I don't know, pick your job that's getting obsoleted, um, assembly line worker, let's say, um, it's, it's really hard to envision all the new jobs that didn't exist last year that, that you can do, you can do now. Um, and so, you know, just the ones that come to mind, you know, are like, it's possible to be a Lyft driver. Um, you know, and again, say what you will about being a Lyft driver and all the complexity around it. Um, and culturally and politically, but, you know, to be able to flip a switch and drive some people around and make money and turn it off is an amazing thing that wasn't possible five mm-hmm. years ago. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when it's like, I, yeah, for, for every, for every job that goes away, you know, there's, there's new jobs that are created and I don't know what that balance is. I don't know if it'll ever, you know, crater into the earth and we'll have nothing to do, or maybe, I, I don't know. I just, I just, humans are, are pretty adept at finding new things to do or new ways to employ that technology for, to, and, and, and people are still incredibly useful right. um, and, and versatile machines. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the idea of being a software engineer didn't even make sense when you didn't have electricity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I'm constantly of the mindset of like something is 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 physically possible right now that we are completely unaware of that is going to change the game for everything but if you think back to like i don't know thousands of years ago and you tried to explain a smartphone to someone yeah and try to explain like so i hold a box in my hand that i can talk to people on the other side of the world but they're not mm-hmm. actually in the box. Right. There's like waves that are, you know, it's like, it sounds like magic and it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But well, I, I, don't, I don't think you need to go back a thousand years. You only need to go back 30 years because the iPhone in your pocket is more powerful than the world's most powerful supercomputer 30 years ago. I mm. mean, you know, again, within, you know, maybe I'm off by a little bit, but I'm not off by much in terms of that being correct. And there was no computer in the world that you could buy that was that powerful. And now, you know, a billion people have one in their pocket, you know, so it's yeah. very, yeah. And what's, what does that enable? So, 
That is very cool to think about. What do you think the in your so you're we're talking about you know the innovation and um, kind of the industrial revolution extending the last two hundred years um, in the last five to ten years that you or I guess it's what been eleven years since you've been in mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. What's been the biggest change in the industry that you're working in? Uh, yeah. So as far as what I think is most different than 10 years ago from from my direct experience and the things that I've worked on is um, it's kind of the role that software plays, you know, in, again, and I, and I work in manufacturing and machines, so in machines, um, because, you know, machines have a rich history, again, going back hundreds of years, you know, people making, you know, and you can go look at these amazing pictures of, you know, giant machine tools, you know, in World War II or, you know, in the 1800s, you know, making locomotives or whatever. There, there is that history, but like really, you know, the way that we talk about it or the way that I think about software, it's like it's like a new material. It's like something new to make machines out of. Um, so um, just like, you know, when it's like they found ways to make aluminum, so now let's make this airplane you know, or let's make this car out of aluminum instead of steel because it'll be lighter. There's a lot of those opportunities in the, in the world of software, you know, in machines, instead of putting gears to connect these things, let's literally make a network cable run from here to over there. And just with packet information, we'll make these two things synchronized to each other physically, right? That Mm. those are the kind of things that can happen. And those are the kind of opportunities. So I guess just in general software and, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm still kind of um, banging the drum for this every single day that like, about what's possible with software tools and with software capabilities in machines um, and really trying to bring that to, to, this, to this world of machines because, um, you know, because of you know, either the capital requirements or what's at stake, it, it can be hard to bring new technology or adopt new technologies into these companies that have long histories of you know, really not being software companies. Um, and with those, you know, with a lot of the biggest biggest opportunities that are coming up with software, whether that's related to networking or um, just what goes on in the machine, what you can do with electronics in a machine for a process to make the machine faster or more accurate or you know, be able to lay down carbon fiber tape faster than it ever could. Um, those are the kind of things that I think so- software can really enable um, and, and make better and that we've really tried to, we've been excited by and, and want to be a part of. And so just software, you know, I mean, I feel like the, the, the guy in the graduate who is like plastics, going to plastics, but, you know, <laughs> just like technology in, in machines and automation, I feel like um, software is really the the big driver. And the, the kind of funny thing about it is, you know, software has been around in machines and like a long time, but, um, it's always been kind of a backwater or in my opinion, not really not, you know, it's taken a long time for that to diffuse over to the world of machines. Um, so even if it's, Oh yeah, we have software on this. It's like, "Mm," it's kind of like a hundred times less capable than what it could be in terms of software. So mm-hmm. we're always trying to we're always trying to take that stuff that's really taken for granted in the you know, software engineering world and bring it over here into machine world and and kind of have it have it be useful in, in new ways. That's interesting. So basically the you're saying that the software is so um, it's gotten so powerful that there's a la- a lag behind implementing 
and I'm sure in some cases it's pretty not complex software into a process that's been done the same way for what 20 years or something and you're yeah, trying or, to or 100 improve. years oh, yeah okay, really wow. like you're making a printing pre like a printing press is a good example like if you look at a printing press that's you know a couple few decades old it it literally has all gears it's all made of gears so all of the paper winding through it is has is controlled by and all the rollers are meshed together with gears mm. um and and so when you do things like never mind digital printing which means you can print every single page differently coming out of a printing press right even even the idea of like how we're going to get the these motors to move in coordination with each other doing that with software to align them and to make them faster there's a lot you can do there that's that's a new capability um, mm. or there's things that you can do to make the machines faster because you have better sense sensory information you can process it faster using software you know all of these things all these developments that are coming from the kind of the it world are, are definitely filtering down they just i just feel like it's that diffusion has taken longer than longer than it should or like there's still big opportunities to use it because um you know it's, it's no different than kind of in in the you know quote unquote tech world where you know the processor that you can get you know this year is 10 times faster than it was a few years ago and, and the, there's, probably, there's more you can do in a machine in that time because you can mm. process more information you can process more sensors you can deal with you know bigger volumes of things and you know what does that enable that we couldn't do before right and then i'm assuming that there's a balance the reason that there is a lag in the physical world of like in industry and factories is that if i'm the factory owner I understand that a newer printer would allow me to do more things, but it's also like, I feel like I could get another couple years out of this existing yeah. one and mm -hmm. make X amount and have greater profits. And then, then I'll invest when there's like a higher demand on the customer end or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And also if nobody else in your industry is, is kind of adopting that or really taking a lead there, it doesn't probably feel like you need to do anything about it mm. so you know i think i think what we're always looking for are like who are those people that are trying to push the envelope let's go let's go help them crush everybody <laughs> in their nice. markets right right mm. so other aside from you know the the past and what you guys are doing currently what are some things that are you know coming down the pipeline for you guys or even things that you see coming on the horizon that make you excited sure um Besides a lot of the technologies that we follow in the software world that we're always trying to bring across to this world of industrial automation, um, whether that's stuff about 3D graphics or new interfaces or, you know, everything go going on with smartphones and tablets and things like that, um, there are really interesting cases of automation technology kind of escaping the factory um, and I mean, the best example of it, which we, we don't directly work on, but you know, you, you hear about car autonomy and, and, and cars that can drive themselves, but you're also seeing a lot of places where, you know, it used to be that the product or what was, what was being, uh, dealt with in a machine was, was all in the factory, in the building. But now you can see there's cases like, for example, in agriculture where robotics are making it out into the fields or out into other cases where they're in not 
not quite as a controlled environment as a factory even. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of things that you can do kind of out in the real world, um, is, is really interesting to us. Um, and the, another area of, of like intense interest for us is also just in kind of robotics, more like what you'd see, like a robot arm. Like if you see a commercial from a car factory and you see like sparks flying everywhere, like most robots that look like that and most are have been welding car bodies together that's where the technology comes from mm-hmm. uh, and so what we're doing again with software is taking over the control at a really low level on, on those robots and and kind of teaching them how to do new things uh, teaching them how to do new processes that are more complex than you know go to this point pinch together fire the weld let go like that's a very basic point to point kind of thing um, there's a lot of new things that we're doing uh, you know where the motion and and how it moves through space and kind of how it how it behaves is is more dynamic than that. That's something that we're uh, investing a lot in, uh, a lot of our time and attention in. So you mentioned like in in the fields or farming and taking robots um, out into that world. Can you give me an example of something that um, whether it's whether or not it's something that you guys are doing that you've seen robots begin automating in. The, uh, the farming situation. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting. This just occurred to me. Um, my, uh, my dad actually worked for Caterpillar for about 40 years. And so I just made this connection of there, there's equipment in fields, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. big combines and things like that, um, that have been around since forever. Um, but now you're seeing that filter into places where the work is, never been able to be done by a machine before, right? Like if you look on YouTube and you look at how carrots are harvested, they just come up in a giant row. You just pull them out with this like big wheel. It's like, it looks really simple, but if you're looking at something like, um, you know, one from Europe that we, we aren't involved in. So it's easier for me to mention is, uh, somebody made a machine that can like look at where the asparagus is and kind of like go down and pull out and harvest the asparagus with a robot instead of, you, you know, something that otherwise would have to be dug up by hand or by a human. Uh, and so improvements in vision and sensing capabilities and, you know, the ability to kind of be more articulate or kind of grasp and kind of very delicately handle these products or go and snip the, you know, strawberry stem exactly at the right place or even see where the strawberries are, which is not easy. Um, mm. All of those things are, are areas where, you know, you're seeing a lot of intent, you're seeing very intense interest in people um, figuring out how to do that. And, and also, also basic cases. Like I think the best example, uh, and we didn't work with them directly, so it's also easier to talk about, but there was a company, um, I'm going to, excuse me, I might butcher their name. I think they were called blue river. Um, and they were recently acquired by John Deere and their product would use computer vision to spot where the weeds are in the field. And then it would only apply, uh, the you know, spray, the pesticide, the spray exactly where the weeds are versus oh, wow. carpet awesome. bombing an entire field with, you know, some or, or genetically modifying the plants so that they could take, you know, insane amounts of pesticide and not die. And all the other weeds would die. <laughs> right. Instead, they're right. going in there pinpointing, you know, exactly. It's called thinning. They would go and they would only like like pinpoint where the little weeds are and, and only spray stuff there. I'm, I'm sure awesome. I'm butchering the details of what they do, but like right. those are the kind of things that um, that are that are possible now. 
So in since starting your company, what has been the thing that has surprised you most? Wow. Uh, I want, it's fun because that it's nothing but surprises. I mean, we've done stuff that's worked really well and we've had stuff that was miserable failures. And, you know, you always go in with the best of hopes and intentions. You don't set out thinking like this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> At least usually you don't. So, I mean, um, the biggest surprises for me are just, um, or something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, I had a lot of, um, I don't know where they come from, but just the ideas about how you're supposed to run a business and what's, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Um, you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And um, more and more, I'm realizing that those are arbitrary or maybe they're right for some companies, but not right for us. And so kind of letting go of those kind of feeling things that you feel like you're supposed to do, whether that's, you know, you can't have engineers that work for you remotely. How, how could that? It's like, well, yeah, you can actually, you can, mm. you can, I'm sure you can, cause we do it and it works great. Um, <laughs> and you know, like so, it, and we like it. Yeah. Yeah. It works great. You know? And, and so like a lot of the kind of, um, conventional wisdom or some things you find are just turned out not to be true. And I mean, on the other hand, there's plenty that you find out is like a cliche for a reason and you know, you can disobey it at your peril. Like, um, so I don't know. It's just, it's always surprising to me to find out what, you know, what turned out to be arbitrary or what, what you could do totally differently. Um, the other thing I've been surprised by, and this comes from, uh, you know, at first it, 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 it comes from basically engineering school, which is, it wasn't that I had a disrespect for other disciplines, but I just didn't understand how much knowledge and how much expertise there is in other fields. Like I just wasn't aware of it. It was just a blind spot, you know? And so like, that's where cases like I mentioned, you know, oh, we need a marketing department. I, I'll jump in and do that. In engineering school, they teach you how to figure out any problem. I should be able to do that. And, you know, it's not that I couldn't, it's just that like, there's so much there, right? There's, there's just as deep a well of a knowledge and experience and history in, in the marketing department as there is in your engineering skills. And so, mm. you know, it's just the, the times where like that would become apparent to me, it'd be like, just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, I should, you know, let me find somebody who's find just the expert as, of yeah, this thing. Yeah. yeah. Like let's find somebody who's just as good at marketing as we are at making robots. Mm. And then we're going to have, and let's put that together and have it be amazing. You know, instead of like, let me try to jump in and do something I'm not suited to do. I mean, some things I figured out earlier, like I don't like running QuickBooks. I don't like writing checks and doing paperwork. Like, but some people really do. They actually do. And, you know, it was easier for me to, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do that even in the early days, just because it was obvious to me immediately. <laughs> and so it's right, like, right. let's find people that can do that job. Um, and so just kind of like learning, you know, learning that there are a lot of other disciplines and kind of coming to, to learn how to work with them and engage them and collaborate that that's often some of the things I find most surprising because it seems really obvious. Um, but you know, it took me a while to kind of figure that out for, for different, for different parts of the company that are really important now. Mm. Yeah. I think that's very, uh, it is something that, uh, there's that balance when you're starting out where you, you maybe don't have the resources to do it, to outsource it. Yeah. But, 
at least what I would say now is that I probably had the resources sooner than I realized I did. Yeah. Um, to to get back the payoff of outsourcing, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the ROI that you get um, is usually more like you. It's very easy, at least for me, mm-hmm. to undervalue my own time doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, when mm-hmm. I'm doing something, I'm not as efficient as someone that is efficient at it. You know. Yeah. So, and a lot of times, there's just no way around that. Like you got to do it, or you got to sort of muddle through it yourself for whatever reason. But I, I've always found that also when hiring people are saying, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out when you hire people, but other times you're like, I don't know how we ever lived without you on our team. Like I literally mm-hmm. don't understand. And I, I wish I had thought of that, you know, two years sooner, because where would we be if, if we had done that? You right, know what I mean, right. you know, cause uh, you know, I, I think it's easy to imagine the failure scenarios, but it also, it also can be surprising on the upside. Like this worked out way better than I thought. So, you know, how to, how to keep trying stuff, you know, uh, the, the phrase, uh, success is moving from failure to failure without a uh, loss of enthusiasm. Um, that I think about a lot. Mm, I like that. What do you, what does, uh, speaking of success, what does that look like to you personally besides moving to failure from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm? What do you, know, you that, what are you yeah. after? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that over the years because, um, you know, I couldn't really put it into words. Um, and the way that we run the company is, you know, has been this way, but a long time, but like we're really independent. Um, and you know, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, a therapist could tell you all about why that is, or me could tell me why all that is, but it's like, um, and you know, whether that's entrepreneurship or just the way that we run the company with sort of like cash flow positive and, and not taking on a lot of outside money is because we really like being able to pursue the stuff that we're interested in and not being told what to do. I mean, it's by other people. Um, Mm. that's a powerful thing. It's also holds, it can also hold you back a lot, which is, you know, the flip side of it. Um, because working with other people and collaborating is also really powerful. Um, but so like independence is, is something that's always been kind of at the root of a lot of our decisions, you know, for better or worse. Um, and so, that's kind of a first thing and happiness is positive cash flow. strongly strong believer in that. Um, and so as long as, you know, for, for many years in, in the beginning of the company, people would ask me how it's going and I would say, Oh, we're still a company, which was literally <laughs> my threshold for success was like, we didn't I have to go get it. It was survival. Right. Yeah. Um, and after a while I had to think about once it was like, okay, it looks like we might survive a, a little longer now. So I should think about, what else we're looking for. Um, and for me, it's really about, I mean, we're really passionate about what we do because it's fun and creative and challenging and engaging. Um, you know, we want to make revolutionary machines because of how satisfying it is to do and how, how engaging it is. So when I think about success, it's like, how can we do that at a bigger scale? How can we do that with, you know, how can we have a bigger impact? And if that's working, with, you know, different companies or clients that, uh, you know, have a broader reach than what we do today, that's really fun. Uh, How do we get access to bigger sets of tools, more resources? Uh, You know, you visited our space here in Portland, which is our kind of like workshop and robot lab. And I'm saying, well, what can I do to make this entire 100,000 square foot building 
full of robots because how fun would that be um, versus the 3,000 that we have now? So those mm. are the kind of things that I think about as, as being successful. And I mean, obviously money and, and you know, the commercial engine of the of what we do is is a source of that. But I never really was like attracted to money as a goal in of itself um, other than, you know, to the extent that I can be independent and kind of make my decisions and kind of pursue the things that I think are interesting. So, um, you know, that's why the idea of retirement to me is more like being able to be work on exactly the things that I want to work on in, you know, kind of independently of the consideration of like, what do we need to do to make money to keep the company alive? Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that that'll, I don't want that to change. Um, if I, you know, and I've known people that have, and you, you meet people, you know, that are other business owners and some of them, they're just like, all they're focused on is, you know, I need to make my, I need to get my $10 million, uh, exit so that I can get away from my company. Cause I hate it. You know, <laughs> And it's like, I want to do everything I can to avoid that, that feeling or that outcome. Mm. Um, that's awesome. So what, um, this is just a fun question. What purchase have you made in the last you know, six months or recent past? of less than a hundred dollars that significantly changed your life? So I have to say I was a bit of a holdout and this is kind of a mundane thing, but I just, I just bought my first wireless charging pad for my iPhone. Uh -huh. And the first time I sat it down, I was like, this is genius. Like, why didn't this cost, this is $20. Why didn't I have this the moment that it was possible? <laughs> and I just was still using this little plug where I was like, I don't need that. I'll just plug it in. And I was like, the first time I set it down, I was like, this is, this is a game changer. I have to have this. So, I mean, like I said, I, uh, part of behind the company, you know, what we do behind the company is, you know, the things that we work on and work, you know, the economic engine of the company is what allows us to have these really cool toys and access to all these amazing tools and stuff like that. So, but those are far out of the hundred dollar realm. Usually. Right. Right. What is the, um, I was actually, um, just out of curiosity, what is there, are you pretty satisfied with the brand? Is it just like a generic one you got off Amazon or something? I got an anchor, uh, that was one of the wire cutter picks, which if you don't know the wire cutter, please improve your life and go read it. Um, I think it wasn't their top choice, but it was on their list and yeah, it's great. It's a little black disc. Okay. So it's wire cutter. I'm, is that a, Oh, I never heard of it. New York. Oh Times my company. goodness, Chris. Interesting. Okay. They were acquired by the wire cutter, but yeah, whenever I need to buy something that I'm not already an expert about, I will just type in today. I typed in uh best tripod wire cutter and I just bought that on Amazon in two minutes. Um, because I trust their recommendations so well. So yeah, if you don't that know where awesome. check it out. Mm -hmm. I'll have to take a look at that. Sweet. And, uh, finally book recommendations. Oh, sure. Um, it probably won't come as a surprise that, uh, I like books where, you know, the engineers are the heroes or the protagonists, uh, or maybe, <laughs> maybe the, uh, the generals are, you know, as I, as I kind of do my entrepreneur thing. Um, but, uh, you know, a fascinating book, uh, my, certainly my favorite of all time is a book called the making of the atomic bomb, uh, by Richard Rhodes. And it tells a story starting from the 1800s of the physicists who started to discover the internal workings of the atom all the way up to the uh, Trinity 
test in New Mexico of Ooh. how, what were all the little pieces that went into the making of the atomic bomb, which is this amazing story of history of people, you know, doing something impossible, but also really complicated. I mean, the, in, in, in the sense of, you know, I, I think a lot of the people that worked on that, you know, had their whole rest of their lives to think about the implications and, you know, about the complexity about that. So that there's some really, really fascinating, like technical history, engineering history, but also, you know, culture and politics and kind of, you know, they created something that literally could destroy the world. So that's kind of an interesting thing to, to consider. Um, mm. Another book that is up there for me is another history book about the oil industry called The Prize by Daniel Jurgen. Uh, and, you know, a 900-page book about the history of the oil industry is not something I would have thought would be gripping, but I would read it and I would just, my jaw would drop constantly because I would say, that's why the borders of that country are drawn that way is because of, you know, the oil industry. Oh, wow. And, and you know, again, starting from the very beginning, right? Like we kind of take for granted, you know, the role of oil or petroleum gasoline in our lives, but it wasn't that long ago that that happened. Like it was the 1800s that before that, you know, they would find oil and they'd be like, oh, whatever, we don't really care. You could distill it into and make some light with it, but it wasn't that important. Mm -hmm. And that was only 200 years ago. So uh, that's a really amazing story to read too. Um, and then another one kind of, I, I talk with EO people sometimes, or if entrepreneurs, organization people, uh, uh, business owner peers, and a lot of them really love to read business books, mm -hmm. which I have sort of a, a rant about, which I will spare you. Um, but my favorite, you know, quote unquote business books are history books where people were in situations where they had really limited information and a lot of uncertainty, and they're still making decisions and accomplishing things in the face of that. So history is a really great, some of the best business books I've read are just history books. Um, and one of the best ones that is my favorite is uh, Pacific Crucible by Ian Toll, which is a story of the Pacific, the naval battle, the naval war in the Pacific in World War II. Mm. The, um, I, am, I am curious if you uh, can give me I mean, I, I'm okay with the long version. What is your rant about business books? Because I feel like I'm intrigued by that. I think business books, well, everybody knows this already, which is they should, they should, they're 200 pages long, but they should be, they could be 20 pages long and really they should be two pages long um, mm. because they're not, you know, that, and they're, they're, they're either repetitive within themselves or they're kind of for, very formulaic and just just, I guess now when I hear about a business book, I say, well, maybe I'll watch the TED Talk because there's no additional information going to come from reading 200 pages than it would mm. be from watching a 15-minute video, which says a lot about, you know, kind of what it means to read a business book. And, you know, I've read some and I've dumped, you know, I don't know how many countless into my head. Um, and I don't know how they've, maybe they have affected my thinking, but, you know, I, I'm sure they have, but I, I don't. I, I kind of avoid them. I, I kind of cringe as I'm getting into them, um, you know, and, and a lot of them you read 20 years later and they don't really stand up like, like, I don't know, like books like Good to Great, where you're like, 
these amazing 11 companies. And you're like, yeah, all those companies went out of business like 10 years after this book was written. So <laughs> who says that they're so smart, right? Like, so, right. you know, I, I find, I find that to be the case <clears throat> a lot of times. Mm, and interesting. the last one I'll mention, cause it just occurred to me was, um, I also became obsessed a year or two ago with, uh, Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book, who wrote a series of books called the Incerto series. And so those books were like, you might've heard of the black swan or fooled by randomness or anti-fragile. Mm. He wrote a number of books about probability that really just completely blew my mind open as an engineer. Uh, you know, he, I remember watching a video, he said, you know, there's some distributions of numbers that don't have an average value. And I was like, what is he talking about? And then he goes and talks about it and you're like, oh my goodness. Uh, this is a statistical thing that I never knew about, but he, you know, and you kind of have to overcome his kind of tone and the way that he writes. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of wisdom there. He's a former wall street trader and uh, has a lot of interesting things to say about, uh, operating in conditions of uncertainty. And what's the book called? Uh, the book that I started with that I thought was really great was called fooled by randomness. Fooled by randomness, but you're saying that a lot you've read several of his books. There's a whole, yeah, good. there's a whole series. There's probably five of them now. Fooled by randomness yeah. was good because uh, he talks a lot about how um, people really underestimate the degree to which randomness plays a role in success and failure. Because uh, mm. if you think about, um, well, uh, that I'll, I'll just say it that way. Like the the most successful traders or the most successful Wall Street people, let's say at a, at a given point, are really just lucky because their style happens to match, you know, whatever the is going on in the world mm. at that moment. And when it changes, you know, and they blow up, the the people that are you know actually better, you know, you have to be operating at that at at that level to be that most successful. It's it, it's a little tricky, and I he says it better than me, but uh, it really. Uh, opened my eyes to think about the role that kind of randomness plays in in success and, and failure. Mm. Well, on, um, thank you, David, for your time. Uh, do you, if someone wanted to reach out to you, do you have a preferred method of contact that they should do that? Sure. I think the best way to reach me is uh, at my Twitter handle, which is at David N I N D A V I D N I N. You can find me there and you can see a picture of me hugging a robot. All right. I'll check that out. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thanks so much, David, for your time. I enjoyed it and uh, hopefully you did as well. Sure. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for your attention and listening to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Your feedback and comments mean the world to me. You can find me on Instagram at Chris Kiefer underscore N-E-T. And you can also shoot me an email at Chris at Chris And don't forget, I make it a point to include all of the links to the books, movies, and resources that were mentioned in this episode in the show notes. You can find those notes directly in the episode description or on my website at Chris You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.